Over the last several months now, I mean, the, the time just keeps growing, uh, I've been trying to be sensitive to what other people have asked me to talk about. Because there's so many issues that are bubbling up uh, that it's like I want to hear from people what are the issues you're dealing with, what's going on. And so trying to make these messages over the last few weeks really relevant to what is going on and to what people are experiencing and the things that they're questioning about. And so that's going to happen again this morning. This one is going to be a little bit different kind of message, and I hope that you can hang with me. My inner geek is going to come out in... uh, and uh, give you a little bit of history, but history is important if we're going to understand about leadership. And that was the question that I was asked. What about leadership? What does good leadership look like? What is good leadership supposed to be? Now, obviously, this is coming out of uh, a critique of the leadership that we were finding ourselves uh, under uh, in these last few weeks and months. And I suppose it's easy to criticize the leadership that we see um, pretty much at all levels of government, no matter what side of the spectrum you may be on. Uh, It seems like our leaders are much more interested in the uh, amassing of power. There's much more allegiance to political power, allegiance to political party, than there is, or allegiance to wealth, than there is to the good of the nation, or there is to the welfare of the people that they were elected to serve. And so we see that going on. We see that There is a disconnect. There's an inconsistency in the way it appears that decisions are being made and the criteria by which they're being made. Um, The communication is inconsistent. And and so we are left with this questioning. What is leadership supposed to look like? And where are our leaders? And so I thought that was an excellent thing to look at. Why are our leaders seeming to refuse to make the hard decisions, the good decisions? Is it only because it would have a negative impact on their power or on their standing, on their prestige? And so these are questions that we are asking. I would assume that most of us are asking these questions. What is it that a good leader should embody? And what makes a great leader? Unsurprisingly, and here's how it's going to relate to us personally, because I never want to give a message that doesn't relate to us personally. I would like every message for us to be able to take something with us that we can use to walk out that door and make a better decision, a more Christ-like decision. What makes a great leader, unsurprisingly, is the same thing that makes a great person. There really is no difference. We are all persons, and in a sense, we are all leaders, too. No matter how small the scope of our leadership may be, we're all leading in some way or another. And so these qualities that we're going to talk about are ones that should be infusing us anyway as followers of Jesus. Jesus, to my thinking, and I'm assuming yours as well, is the fullest example of a great leader. He embodies everything that it means to be a great leader, obviously a great person. If Jesus is one with the Father, there is no daylight between them, then we can be sure that leadership and personhood is exemplified in Jesus and in other great leaders as well. And so we want to take a look at Jesus and his leadership, but we also want to take a look at some other leaders that can maybe bring this home for us in a way that is even more impactful because Scripture has gotten so familiar and seems so removed in time, if we can bring something further home 
Maybe we can get our arms around this leadership and this personhood issue. What are those qualities? What are those, those modes of operation that are going to take us where we really want to go? I have five points that I want to make, and there are a couple of sub-points as well, of course, but five of them. Let's just take a look at five. This is not exhaustive. This is kind of just over the last few days of me thinking about this, so don't hold me to it. But the first one, the first aspect of a great leader that I see is that a great leader is not identified has not identified himself or herself with power. A great leader is not seeking power, does not want power for himself or herself, but uses power as a tool to accomplish what is best for the people as a whole. It's a tool. It's not an identity. It's a tool. It's not something that is sought for self, but used for others. Power is important but it has to be used right. I always remember this great line from Woody Allen. He said, I would never want to belong to a club that would have me for a member. Anybody remember that one? (laughs) I'd never want to belong to a club that would have me for a member. You know, if you kind of take that and tweak it a little bit, we can say anybody who desires a powerful office should be disqualified from having it. Now that's going to mess us up a little bit, isn't it? But I think you're catching my drift here. What's going on here? Is anyone really immune to the call to the corruption of power? Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. We've heard that one for our our entire lives as well. Is anyone immune to that? And if that is what you are seeking, if that is what you want above all else, then, my gosh, for the good of the people... You should be denied that power because it's not going to be used well. It's not going to be used the way we're talking about it. That is the very definition of mammon. That which you pile up and collect in your life that comes to define you. Not just wealth, but wealth that possesses you. And this would be the use of power in that way. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about George Washington. George Washington, our first president, and you may hear some things you've never heard about him before this morning, I hope so, an amazing, amazing man. There would be no United States as we understand it if it weren't for George Washington, and not just because he served as our president. When he won and finally won at the head of the Continental Army, the the American Revolution, there was only a loose confederation called the Articles of Confederation And it was only loosely holding the country together. In fact, they'd already realized, the Congress had already realized that it wasn't going to work and it had to be reworked. And Washington's popularity was immense. You can't imagine how popular he was. He had the whole army at his control. They loved him as their leader. They revered him as the one who won the Revolutionary War. And the people loved him as well. The United States was this fragile, little flickering flame Anything could have blown it out. Anything could have turned it into another direction. Washington saved that fragile union by stepping down from power, by absolutely giving up power. In 1781, he won the Battle of Yorktown over Cornwallis. That was the last major land battle of the Revolutionary War. It was basically over. It took two more years to sign all the treaties and get all the dots uh, you know, over the I's and the T's crossed. So in 1783, the war was completely over. Washington was at the height of his power. He had the army at his behest. If you've got the army, you've got everything. 
Do you understand that? In ancient Rome, it was illegal, it was treason for a general to bring a standing army into Rome. That was considered treason. It was a capital offense. They would be killed. That's why it was such a big deal when Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon. All you history buffs know, he stood at the north side of the Rubicon, this little stream that was the dividing line between Gaul and Rome, and contemplated crossing with his army because he knew as soon as he did that, it was civil war and the die was cast, which is what he's reportedly having said. The die is cast when he crossed it. Washington found himself in the same position. He controlled the army. He could have done anything he wanted. He could have had anything he wanted. He could have been king. He could have changed the course of this union, but he resigned his commission in 1783, voluntarily gave up power. It is hard for us to understand how huge that is because we live in a nation that is 250 almost years old, and it is hard for us to imagine a time when that flame was so fragile that one other misstep would have changed the course of history. Washington voluntarily gave that up. This is huge. Historian Gordon S. Wood, in his Pulitzer Prize-winning um, history of the Revolutionary War, said this of George Washington. Washington, of course, was the perfect Cincinnatus. If you don't know Cincinnatus, he was the Roman patriot that returned to his farm after his victories in war in ancient Rome. The greatest act of Washington's life, the one that gave him the greatest fame, was his resignation as commander-in-chief of the American forces. King George III, Washington's enemy, the King of England, who was fighting the other side of the Revolutionary War, told a painter, one of the portrait painters, in regard to General Washington since his resignation, in the king's opinion, that act closing and finishing what had gone before and viewed in connection with it, place him in a light, the most distinguished of any man living, the greatest character of the age. This was his enemy, the King of England. The American artist John Trumbull, a former aide to Washington, said, it excites the astonishment and admiration of this part of the world. It is a conduct so novel, so inconceivable to people who, far from giving up powers they possess, are willing to convulse the empire to acquire more. His resignation is one of the highest moral lessons ever given to the world. And the historian Thomas Fleming also described the significance of this event. This was, is, the most important moment in American history. The man who could have dispersed a feckless Congress and obtained for himself and his officers riches worthy of their courage was renouncing absolute power to become a private citizen. He was putting himself at the mercy of politicians over whom he had no control and in whom he had little confidence. <laughs> this is amazing. This is huge. But it was also just the beginning. He went home. He resigned his commission, went home to Mount Vernon, and started farming again. He got four years there before all of the letters started pouring in. All of his friends and all of his associates started coming and persuading him to chair the Continental, or the Constitutional Convention. The articles were not working. They convened the, Consti the Constitutional Convention in 1787, and they begged Washington to be president and preside over it, and he finally agreed. He did that. As soon as the convention was over and the Constitution was signed, he went back home again. But this time he only got a year at his beloved Mount Vernon farming. 
because the election of 1788 was on the horizon. As soon as the Constitution was in place, obviously had to elect a president and a vice president. The campaign of 1788, you know what it was? It was people lobbying George Washington to accept the presidency. It was a foregone conclusion. He was the only man with a stature. He was the only man who had the ability and the character and the esteem to be able to hold this fragile union together. All these states fighting among themselves for toeholds and power as they were writing the way that this country was going to be governed. They knew that Washington was the only one. They had to beg him. He didn't want to do it. Mail was pouring into Mount Vernon. Friends and associates were coming to visit him and begging him. And finally, in 1788, he accepted. He is the only president in U.S. history to be elected unanimously by the Electoral College. And he was elected unanimously twice by the Electoral College. And he could have been elected unanimously for the rest of his life if that's what he wanted. But he set the president, the precedent of a two-term president. After two terms, he would not accept a third nomination. He would not accept a third term. And for 150 years, that president was kept by U.S. presidents until FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was elected four times uh, to office. The fourth time he was elected, he, only, he died only a couple months after his fourth inauguration and Harry Truman took over. And then in 1951, the 22nd Amendment was ratified, which limited U.S. presidents to two terms. But for 150 years, the strength of Washington's voluntary precedent held sway over American presidents. He didn't even want the office. He wrote in a letter to Edward Rutledge that in accepting the presidency, he had given up quote, all expectations of private happiness in this world, close quotes. He wrote in another letter to Henry Knox, I feel for those members of the new Congress who hitherto have given an unavailing attendance at the theater of business. For myself, the delay may be compared to a reprieve. This is the year that he got to spend at home before coming back to accept the presidency. He calls that delay a reprieve. For in confidence, I can assure you that my movement to the chair of government will be accompanied with feelings not unlike those of a culprit who is going to the place of his execution. So unwilling am I, in the evening of a life nearly consumed in public cares, to quit a peaceful abode for an ocean of difficulties, without that competency of political skill, abilities, and inclinations which is necessary to manage the helm. I am sensible that I am embarking the voice of my countrymen and a good name of my own on this voyage. But what returns will be made for them, heaven alone can foretell. Integrity and firmness is all I can promise. These, be the voyage long or short, never shall forsake me, although I may be deserted by all men. For of the consolations which are to be derived from these under any circumstances, the world cannot deprive me. With best, best wishes for Mrs. Knox and sincere friendship for yourself, I remain your affectionate George Washington. Did you hear that? He felt like he was going to the gallows. He felt like he was entering an ocean of difficulties when all he wanted to do was to go home and farm and live his life. Power did not corrupt him. Power did not call him. He had to be dragged, kicking and screaming to the seat of power. 
And when he used power, he used it for the good of the people. He used it to fan the flame of the beginning of this new nation. He could have been president for life, but he wouldn't do it. Washington gave this republic a chance at its most vulnerable moment. He displayed certain qualities. And when you think about everything that I've just told you, he displayed a deep humility. He understood his own limitations. He knew what he did and didn't have as a politician, as a leader. He understood that. He was willing to embrace uncertainty. He had no idea what this was going to bring. He didn't have an absolute certainty in his own ability to be able to pull anything off. He embraced the uncertainty. He had a driving desire for the good of all people and to use the power for that end. Where do we see these qualities in our leaders? These are the qualities that would transform the landscape of our country if we could have them in key places. There's a Hebrew prayer, a rabbinical saying, that goes, any prayer that's not prayed in the name of all Israel is no prayer at all. Hebrew prayers are prayed in the plural, never in the singular, because they were supposed to be collective. They were supposed to be communal. They're supposed to incorporate everyone. This is what Washington is doing. This is what Jesus is doing. Take a look at Matthew 20, starting at verse 20. This is an interesting little pericope, a little story here in Matthew. The mother of of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. This is almost right up to the end. This is right up to Passion Week. All right? The mother of the sons of Zebedee come to Jesus, bowing down, making a request. And she said, and he said to her, what do you wish? And she said, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine, mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. She's asking for power. They still didn't get it. As long as they had been traveling with Jesus, they still were looking for power. They were still looking for that way to be able to finagle and maneuver. And here comes the mother (laughs) to lobby for the boys at the expense of the other ten. Right? you got to figure out what's going on here. Jesus answers and says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. They had no idea what that was, but we were able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. They're all fighting with each other. They're all jockeying for position. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is still at this late date trying to teach them, trying to show them power is not to be sought for self. It is used to be able to serve the people that you are beholden to. He's trying to get this across to them. At John 18, starting at verse 33, this is Jesus before Pilate. This is the the morning of the crucifixion. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Here is Jesus letting go of power. He could have had legions of angels, he says elsewhere. He could have had his servants fighting for him. He could have at any step in the Passion Week took a different turn to consolidate power and to foment the revolution that they were looking for. He didn't do it. He gave it away. He, every time the mantle of power was trying to place on his shoulders, he shrugged it off. Power isn't to be gathered for self. Power is to be used as a tool for the people. The next attribute of a great leader is that an, a great leader is willing to make difficult decisions. A great leader is willing to confront challenges, but confront them with balance, confront them with awareness, confront them with empathy. A great leader is willing to be criticized. And most importantly, a great leader is willing to occupy that liminal space that we keep talking about, to stay on the threshold, to stay in the doorway, to be able to see all sides of any issue, to be able to see all people wherever they happen to fall in the spectrum. Honor all sides. Give credit where credit is due. Take criticism where criticism is due. To be able to do that is a difficult proposition, but a great leader does that. Jesus never backed down from a principled conflict. Go back and read the red letters. Read every Sabbath conflict that he had with the Pharisees. He never backed down. Reread the cleansing of the temple and see what he did there and realize that where there needed to be conflict, where there needed to be pushback, he was willing to do that, but he did it in a balanced way. He did it honoring all sides, even if all sides didn't feel honored. He was still there honoring all sides, seeing all sides, but always working for the people that he was beholden to, the people that he was leading. He honored everyone, including a Roman centurion, including Samaritans, including women, including those at the margins of society, those who stood outside the law. Everyone got Jesus' attention. Everyone got Jesus' honor. Everyone got Jesus' healing when healing was appropriate. This is liminal space. This is being able to still be a part of your own tribe, your own group, and yet see those who are not. Loving the enemy is Jesus' highest form of love, which is the same idea of being able to stay in that space. Arguably, the greatest U.S. president was Abraham Lincoln. And I wanted to read you a little bit about what he did. And I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but Lincoln shows us what this second point is all about, this ability to stay in liminal space, this ability to make the difficult decisions and honor all parties. There's a book called The Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln by Doris Kearns Goodwin. And in 1860, she writes, a prairie lawyer and former one-term congressman, Abraham Lincoln, stunned the country by prevailing over three prominent rivals, William H. Seward, Salmon P. Chase, and Edward Bates, to win the Republican nomination for president. Perhaps, perhaps equally surprising was what Lincoln did after being elected president. 
He appointed all three rivals to his cabinet. Okay, can you imagine that happening today? The person that you defeated, the one that was absolutely decrying you as a, as a, as a candidate for president is the one that you appoint, not one, but three of them to your own cabinet? Where did I leave off? A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Perhaps equally surprising was what he did after. He appointed all three to his cabinet, Seward as Secretary of State, Chase as Secretary of the Treasury, and Bates as Attorney General. It's amazing. The prevailing wisdom then and today is that you pick people who think the way you do because that's what builds an effective team, right? Lincoln said that he believed that the country moving into the crisis that was looming, the Civil War, which was unavoidable, was going to require the best and brightest that the country had to offer. And he said these men were those men, the best and the brightest. And he himself needed to be held to account. He himself needed to be sharpened by their opposing views, by their critiques of him. But what happened over the course of his presidency, just four years, was that he won over these men. And I want to read you just a couple more paragraphs from uh, Goodwin's book. How did Lincoln win the respect of his rivals? A set of emotional strengths was the foundation of Lincoln's political genius. He understood that human relations are at the core of politics, and that if you deal with people in the right manner, you are going to be able to work effectively with them. The qualities we associate with human greatness, such as sensitivity, empathy, compassion, kindness, honesty, are also keys to political success. When something went well, Lincoln always shared the credit. When something went wrong, he shouldered the share of the blame. When he himself made a mistake, he acknowledged it immediately. He made time for each of his cabinet members so that they all felt they had access to him. He treated them all respectfully and fairly, and he kept their spirits up. We think of Lincoln as being melancholy, but he actually had a remarkable sense of humor and was a terrific storyteller. He relaxed his colleagues and cheered them up. In the end, these people came not only to respect Lincoln, but also to love him. Seward, who started as Lincoln's biggest rival, ultimately wrote to his wife, the president is the best of us. It's a wonderful arc of the story that Lincoln and Seward became such good friends. The development of their relationship was very emotional for me to watch. And if you're wondering how she found all this out, all of these guys were rabid letter writers, and she read hundreds of their letters that gave insight into their relationships with Lincoln and made their relationships come alive. Seward didn't live very far from the White House. It was within walking distance. And Lincoln would often, late at night, just walk over to his house and kick up his feet and sit there and they would talk. I mean, can you imagine? He just walks across town <laughs> over to the secretary's house and sits down. It was such a different time, but you get the essence of what's going on. Lincoln and Jesus both show this sensitivity, this empathy, this compassion, a kindness, an honesty, an encouragement, and a sense of humor to the people that they are leading. And it has huge impact. Third aspect of a great leader. Great leaders are not perfect. Newsflash! Great leaders are not perfect. Great leaders are still deeply flawed. Great leaders have experienced loss. They've experienced trauma. They've experienced suffering. 
At least you hope they have. Lincoln and Winston Churchill, the leader of England during World War II, suffered greatly from depression. They were both suicidal at various points in their lives. They suffered great loss, especially Lincoln lost two children while he was in the White House. Great loss. Besides having to face the Civil War, Churchill having to face the World War II, and what that meant to England, especially in the early years. Martin Luther King and Gandhi, same thing. Histories of depression in their life. They were both suicidal, at least as adolescents. And they both were the victims of racial oppression. Obviously, Martin Luther King in the South in the United States, Gandhi in India under the British. Great loss. Great trauma that was suffered by these men. But see, we talked about this before. Suffering and loss and the experience of it has an effect on us. It opens us up. It carves out the trivial. It carves out and clears out the non-essential things in life. It peels away the veneer and shows us what's actually, what is actually going on. Even this thing that we've been through for the last five months has peeled away a lot of the veneer of our own lives and of our own society to be able to see what is really at issue. You want a leader who has gone through that process himself or herself because it is that process that creates the space, the awareness that allows for compassion, for empathy, and for understanding between people. Jesus grew up under grinding poverty. He grew up under the oppression, the boot of the Roman Empire. He experienced these things. Then he voluntarily went into the wilderness and divested himself of anything and everything that was left of his own identity until he realized who he was was one with the Father. These leaders aren't perfect, and they shouldn't be perfect. We shouldn't expect them to be perfect, and we shouldn't want a perfect leader. If we demand perfection, we will miss the best. The best is not perfect. Have you ever heard the phrase, never meet your heroes? (laughs) Why? Because then you'll realize they're not perfect. But I think also we probably should meet our nemeses because then we'll realize they're just broken human beings too and not the huge boogeyman that we put up on the pedestal just like we do with our heroes that we've never met before. But to get close to any of them is to realize they're just people. But people put in extraordinary places sometimes. But the ones that will lead best, especially through a crisis, are the ones who have been through crises of their own already and have been prepared to be able to meet that challenge. The fourth attribute of a great leader, absolute deep convictions, deep adherence to core values, but at the same time to see the value in compromise for the greater good. Politics is compromise. Do you get that? Do you know what politics really is? Politics is just making decisions in group settings. Politics is managing power relations in group settings. That's what politics is. Politics is all about managing cost-benefit analysis. It's all about compromise. Politics will never have a perfect result. It will never be an ideal. Politics is the quest for the best that is achievable now. That's the best that politics can do. 
A good leader understands this. A good leader is willing to compromise. A good leader is willing to delay ultimate goals now and accomplish what can be accomplished now, but to set the stage for the later accomplishment of the goals. Aaron here is a pool player. He's, no, he's going to know what I'm talking about. A good pool player, what does he do? Every shot he makes, he's setting up the next shot he makes. And so he's getting the caroms, he's getting the ball set so that he can make the next. He's thinking three shots ahead at least, maybe more. A good chess player, always thinking three moves ahead. A good leader will be thinking in the same way. I can't achieve this right now without tearing the fabric of this union. I can't achieve this right now without going into detrimental effects. But if I can do this that sets up for this, maybe it's not even me. Maybe it's the next generation. Maybe it's the next election cycle. But to set up the possibility of getting to the goal is the incremental approach that a good leader will understand. But it's hard to compromise, especially when you have these deep convictions and these deeply held beliefs, isn't it? Here's an example. The Constitutional Convention that we just talked about that George Washington was presiding over. you got 13 colonies that were now 13 states. Big states with big populations, little states with small populations, free states with no black slaves or very, very few. Slave states with huge black populations, sometimes a third to half of the population of the slave states were blacks. Everyone has competing issues and competing jealousies and what they're trying to do is they jockey for power. How do you put all that together? Because the little states are going to be worried as they're voting to and, and how to write up the way the Congress is going to work that they will be underrepresented against the big states, right? Because they've got the small population, the big populations. The great compromise, the Connecticut compromise in the Constitutional Convention was that we would have a bicameral system. We've got two houses. The upper house, every state is equal. You get two representatives for each state. Small states, very happy, because they have the same voice as the big states. The lower house, house of representatives, by population. And so the big states have the advantage because they get more delegates. Delegates, every 10 years that the census is taken, it's reevaluated, and they get the number of delegates by population. All right, that was fairly easy. That's not such a big deal. But now take a look at this free slave situation. The slave states have huge black populations, which swells their population. The free states don't have that advantage of population. The slave states are going to want all of their people, including the black slaves, to be counted for purposes of representation because that gives them more power in the House of Representatives, right? The free states are going to want those slaves not to be counted so that they have less power and they have more power by percentage-wise. All right, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to count these slaves? The other half of the equation is that the states were also to pay taxes to the central government, and that was also by population. So now the slave states aren't going to want to count their slaves for purposes of taxation, and of course the free states are going to want to count them. So you've got all these problems. How are you going to deal with this? I don't know if you've ever heard of the three-fifths compromise. It's been mischaracterized so many times because what it looks like is that the Constitutional Convention was saying that a black slave was worth three-fifths of a person. But that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that three out of five slaves will be counted for the purposes of both taxation and representation in those slave states. It was a compromise. 
the free states wanted none, the slave states wanted all, and so they compromised on three out of five. Now what this did, in effect, it gave the southern states a lot more power, and they carried this power through all the way to the Civil War when this was abolished by the amendments that abolished slavery. 14th Amendment abolished slavery. 13th Amendment abolished slavery. And, and with it went the three-fifths compromise. Would you be willing to make a compromise like that? That's such a difficult compromise. To be vilified through history as, as a racist because you made a compromise like that? But if those two compromises hadn't been made, there would, have, there would be no United States as we know it right now. Those colonies would have split. They would have fractured. They never would have reached a decision that allowed the country to move forward. A great leader understands this, has the deep convictions, has the core values, but is willing to compromise, to move incrementally toward the goal that under politics will never be perfect, but it can be the best that can be accomplished right now. This is so important. It's heartbreaking to take the ball only as far as you can and not be able to take it to the goal line where you want it to be, but realizing that the cohesion of the group is even more important than that. Trusting others to complete the work that you can't complete right now because of powers that you can't control. The fifth and last attribute of a great leader is that a great leader is competent, a great leader understands the issues that he or she is presented with, and maybe as a more, or more importantly, understands the people that he or she is leading, understands what they need, understands what they want, but is also aware of his or her own personal limitations. They understand that they are not necessarily the smartest person in the room. They are not the best at any one area that they might have to deal with. But... They are willing to attract and to hold. They are able, because of who they are and their character, to attract and to hold those who are the best and the brightest at any given area that is needed. That's huge. To be able to surround yourself with people who are better than you are, do you know the security of character that that takes for a person to be able to do that? That's why Lincoln was so brilliant to create the cabinet he created, to surround himself, to surround the leader with those who can do the things that the leader can't do himself or herself. Being a great communicator is also really helpful, but it's not critical. Martin Luther King and Lincoln were amazing communicators, wrote speeches that will be living as long as there is history of the United States being recited. Washington, not so much. <laughs> not one of the deepest thinkers, not the sharpest tool in the shed when it came to philosophy and those things, but able to galvanize people together for the good of the nation. Moses, you know that he probably had a speech impediment? Most likely he stammered or had some other speech impediment. When God calls him from the burning bush to lead his people, he objects. Lord, you know that I am slow of tongue and slow of speech. I can't put two words together, he's telling the Lord. And the Lord gets annoyed with him and finally says, all right, fine, don't worry about it. You got, you got Aaron, right? Aaron, he's a great speaker. That guy can talk to a fence post. You're going to use him as your mouthpiece. 
I will give you the words. You give Aaron the words. Aaron will give the people the words. It's all going to work out fine. Don't worry about it. These people, these great leaders, don't have to be the great communicator, the great orator, the great speechwriter. You have people for that. But if you have the strength of character, if you are able to motivate people to help them see a vision, to feel the vision, then they can turn and communicate what needs to be communicated. What makes a great leader? I want to read you one more perspective, and this comes from a completely different direction, from Chinese philosophy, from Lao Tzu in the Tao Te Ching. Listen to what he writes. And this would have been 4th century BC, 400 years before Jesus. He writes, the best leaders are those the people hardly know exist. I want you to think about that for a second. The best leaders are those the people who are being led hardly know exist. The next best is a leader who is loved and praised. Interesting, huh? Next comes the one who is feared, and the worst one is the leader who is despised. But the best leader is one that the people barely know exists. If you don't trust the people, they will become untrustworthy. The best leaders value their words and use them sparingly. Value their words, but use them sparingly. When the leader has accomplished his or her task, the people say, amazing, we did it all by ourselves. The greatest leaders diffuse their power by empowering others to do what they can do for themselves. They don't hold everything to themselves. They don't make themselves indispensable. They don't make themselves the middleman between the people and the things that they need, just as the Pharisees had made themselves the middleman between the people and their God. Jesus was pulling the middleman out. That's why they killed him, because he was trying to empower the people to directly connect with their God. What did he say? John 14. If you follow my ways, these things you see me do, you will do, and greater things than these. Empowering the people to be able to do these things. The greatest leaders diffuse their power. They don't arrogate it to themselves. They are wholly devoted to the growth and the fulfillment of others, of those that they lead. In John 13, when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, what is the message that he's sending them? I am the master. You call me master, and rightly so, for I am your master. But look what I am doing. You see, the power that I am giving you, the empowerment that I am giving you, comes from underneath. I am supporting you. I am serving you. You go do likewise. Diffuse your power. Never arrogate it to yourself. Allow it to flow. Give the power away. Serve with that power. What makes a great leader? What makes a great person? What makes a person who looks like Jesus? Those are the things we need to know. Those are the things that we need to hang on to. Let's just look at them again. A great leader, a great person, a person who is living in Christ is not one who is identified with power, who doesn't see power as their own identity, who exudes humility, is willing to embrace uncertainty, has the desire of the good of all people, diffuses their power. 
He's a person, she's a person who makes difficult decisions, who confronts the challenges that are presented with balance, with awareness, who is willing to stay in that liminal space to honor everyone, to see all sides of an issue, to see all people who occupy those sides, to give credit where credit is due, no matter what camp it comes from, and to take criticism for his or her own camp when that is due. The great leader, the great person is not perfect, has suffered loss and trauma, but that opens the space up for the compassion, the empathy, and the honesty, the sensitivity, kindness, encouragement, and even the sense of humor that allows for connection, allows for motivation, allows for empowerment. The great leader has the deep conviction and the values, but values compromise as well, and always works for the greatest good over individual accomplishment that may put them in the history books, but realizes what is accomplishable now for the good of the people. The great leader is competent, but aware of their own limitations and surrounds himself, herself, with those who are better than they are, but through strength of character, holds them together, motivates them, and imbues them with that vision that takes everyone forward. If we're looking for great leaders, if we're looking for leaders in our society, in our government, in our local politics, wherever they happen to be, as with everything else, the search begins within us, not out there someplace. Jesus is always pointing us inward. Don't look there for the kingdom. You're not going to find it. It's within. It's among It's here, it's close, it's intimate. If you're looking for great leaders, start your search within, right here and right now. And as we look for these great leaders, look for these qualities within you first. See if they're there. We may not find these qualities out there on the national stage anywhere, anytime soon. But I'll tell you what, if we can't find them in here, then we're really lost. Jesus is telling us, look within. These are the qualities that I'm showing you. These are the qualities that you can look and see if you can find as you make your decisions who to vote for, who to support, who you want to run around the block with a sign for. That's up to you. But find them first inside because you are a leader too. No matter how small your sphere And the great balance and the kingdom that moves into and infects our society is going to come from within. When enough of us find those qualities within ourselves, that we can actually affect the quality of life around us. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. That's what a great leader really is. Let's pray. Father, you are the perfect leader, the only perfect leader. Help us more and more, as always, to find ourselves in you so that we can find in ourselves those same qualities, so that we can grow and nurture those qualities in ourselves, so that we can be what it is we're looking for somewhere else and take with us those qualities wherever we go. But more and more be discerning be able to see the choices that need to be made to the extent that we can make them 
Father, we pray for our country, we pray for our communities. We know that things are difficult right now and much is at stake. But still we know that in you, our fulfillment as a human being is still right here, right now, within and among our most intimate relationships. So help us always to start there, to focus there first before we turn our attention outward so that every time we do turn our attention outward, we do it with the right motives, with the right awareness and connection that will make our presence a blessing wherever we go. Thank you for always being our blessing, Father. Let us never forget that we can only love or do anything of this that we're talking about because you did it first, loved us first, cared for us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's all stand.